the second part of this series talks about um, kind of the 1970s, 1980s, uh, after Medicare has already, already been passed, uh, about, the, uh, about advanced imaging, the inception of advanced imaging, and that effect on radiologists' incomes. So can you tell us, Max and Frank, um, what, what, what happened in the 1970s, 1980s to radiology and to healthcare costs overall uh, po immediately post-Medicare passage? So, you know, in, in the early days of CT, um, the scanners were really expensive and really slow and had really thick slices. And a lot of, you know, residents today might not really realize that, you know, the first CTs um, only were only for the head. And then when the body CTs came out, they imaged um, in probably centimeter thick slabs and you would, you would, uh, this, the tube would rotate, you would get an image and then the patient would move and then you would get another rotation. So it was really a step function. And so a CT scan of the torso, I don't know, maybe took 15, you know, 20 minutes at that time. Um, and as the CT technology evolved, you know, essentially into the spiral CT where you could image continuously as the patient, you know, moved through the scanner, uh, you went from this stepwise function of imaging to actually a continuous, almost volumetric, you know, imaging of the patient. And so the scans, the scan time got much, much faster. And now we're at the point where the rate limiting step of, of scanning a patient isn't the scan time. I mean, you can scan an entire torso in what, in a, under a minute, but it's actually, you know, getting the patient on the table, off the table, you know, waiting for the next patient, you know, to, to arrive. Um, so over, you know, the history of CT, uh, scanners just got much, much faster. Um, they also, you know, got less expensive and I don't know the exact, you know, dollar amount in, in relative uh, or present value, but scanners got much, you know, much less expensive. And also um, people kept their scanners longer. You know, in the 80s when CT technology was evolving rapidly, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to replace a CT, you know, after, after a few years because the technology that was available was so much better than what what you you know what you had if the scanner was a few years old, and then as the technology really matured, the technical advances became smaller and smaller. So I think now people keep their equipment um, you know much much longer, and also years ago, in order to upgrade a scanner, it was a forklift you know upgrade. You had to physically take the the scanner out. And put a new scanner in, and then at some point the manufacturers started, you know, making these um, these upgrades that were either modular for the hardware or really just software upgrades. So the cost of upgrading the scanner uh, became much less. So really, all of these factors let you scan uh, faster, which means you could scan more patients uh, in the same amount of time, uh, and the cost of the equipment came down to purchase new equipment, but also the incremental costs of upgrading 
the scanner uh, became less and the frequency that the scanners were upgraded also became less. And this then maps onto the, uh, the payment policy, which I think Frank you know, can talk about, uh, which you know, I think led to, uh, led to what we're calling you know, the advanced imaging and, and the impact on radiologist income, which then leads to the bubble. Um, so I, I think a, a place to start uh, is to say that, that, you know, on the one hand, with the passage of Medicare, you began to get the professional fee and the technical fee. But in the case of x-rays, neither fee meant very much. They weren't that big. I mean, they were sort of... The point again, though, getting back to the, to the fact that, that Medicare was hands-off in terms of cost, so the question is, well, here's this new technology. How do we establish the professional fee and the technical fee? And basically, it let the profession in different areas of the country define it themselves. It was kind of the blue cross, what was then called the blue cross blue shield method of saying, well, what's the usual customary blah, blah cost in your area? And, and that's what we'll set it at. You can't be too much out of line, but, but with this new technology, there wasn't anything to compare it to. And so you really had, you really were kind of setting your own prices, at least at the start. So uh, the, the professional fee was well above what the fee was for reading an x-ray. And the, and the same thing was true on the technical side, but the technical side turned out to have very big problems that would persist basically until maybe 10 years ago or something like that. And, and the issue was this, um, the idea was that you were supposed to set a technical fee that allowed you to get a reasonable return on the scanning equipment. And so the question is, well, how are you going to do that? And, and the argument was, well, here, the formula we're going to use is to say, well, here's the cost of the machine. So we can figure out what a, a reasonable total return should be in a given year on that machine. And uh, we're, what we're going to do is to, estimate the number of studies that we're going to do during the year and then we'll divide that number of studies into the total amount of money we should be earning to get a reasonable return on the machine and that will be our per image per study amount that we'll charge that will be our technical fee well as, as early as 1978 the office of technology assessment did a bunch of field surveys about how this technology was being used in doctors' offices. And the thing they found was that um, people consistently, when they were putting in the data to set their fees, were consistently lowballing the number of studies they were going to be doing over the course of the year. That is to say, the typical application based its technical fee on the idea that they would do 2,000 studies in the course of a year, and in fact, they were doing 3,000 studies in the course of the year. You can imagine from an economic perspective, there was enormous incentive to do that because if you were breaking even on a scanner at 2,000 studies a year, everything above 2,000 studies was basically pure profit, right? I mean, it, you, you know, you, you more than made the return on the scanner. And, and that kind of problem of, of underestimating how much a machine was going to be used over the course of the, it, that persisted forever. I mean, we had talked, for example, with a lobbyist at one point who was talking about somebody that the lobbyist knew who you know the deal was well we're going to assume because medpac assumes that you use it for 50 percent of a normal work week 
they were running 24 hours a day, forget about 50% of a normal work week. And so of course they were making enormous amounts of money. And, and what that eventually became as you were getting into the 90s and 2000s was this kind of field of dreams effect. That is to say, from the point of view of the owner of the scanner, it made enormous sense that you could get enough studies to have a lot of capacity once you put in the capacity, you can always find reasons to, to do more studies. You, you, you change your criteria, or in the case of some guys, you just paid kickbacks for referrals. You know, I mean, there were scandals like that and so on. But, but the basic idea was allowing uh, the, the, the owner of the equipment, to, or in this case, Medicare, to do these very conservative estimates, or MedPAC, very conservative estimates, of the number of studies per year, that just opened the door to all kinds of issues. Yeah, that's a, Frank, that's a great explanation, uh, uh, com, you know, of, of, the, uh, of the impact of um, sort of the costing, the professional fee, or sorry, the technical fee costing um, of that new CT and in the 80s MRI technology and combine that with what Max has just told us about I assume that you know everybody who was performing CT and then eventually MRI a decade later, uh, like you said, the machines got better, and I'm sure the radiologists and the technologists and whoever owned the equipment also got better at efficiency and increasing their throughput. So not only not only uh, could you say that you were um, utilizing the scanner 50% of the time, but actually using it 75% of the time, but you probably in that 75% uh, usage rate, you're even packing in more patients probably because you're getting better year by year. One guy told us that one guy told us that very early on, uh, he and his partner figured out uh, and, and started talking to GE about how to make dockable, dockable gurneys so that you could undress and prep everybody outside the CT and then just sort of roll out the one gurney with the patient who just had the image and roll it the next and you could cram that many more studies into a given period of time. The incentive, right? That's the economic incentive. That's fantastic. All right, great. So let's go on to the, the next segment here, uh, which is entitled the, the bubble years of radiology. And I think, uh, I wasn't quite of um, of age to have seen this, really. Uh, at least I was not a practicing radiologist. In that oh, no, I always, we heard about your young years down here. We know about your young years. Max can let, let we'll let Max educate us about the bubble years, so to speak, in the in the '90s. Uh, what was what was that like? And you know, um, in particular, you know, there there were a couple of technologic um, factors. That caught, you know, that, that were in play during the bubble years of radiology. Let, let, let me start for one second and then turn it over to Max. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, the, the, the one yeah. thing you gotta, one, one of the things you gotta remember is that the bubble years, what turned out to be the bubble years, started out with this one or two year total freeze because radiologists and everybody else was terrified about what the Clinton healthcare reforms might do to the market. And so the market basically just dried up. It was very hard to get jobs. Anybody who graduated in that period, it was a rough time. And so the bubble years really began once the Clinton healthcare reforms collapsed, or what was known at the time as Hillary Care collapsed. Boom, Max, it's all yours. All right. So, you know, during that time, it was really um, just this, um, you know, unchecked growth. I mean, every 
you know, every year the volumes went up, um, you know, payments were, you know, uh, reimbursements, you know, were, were coming in. Uh, and the challenge was fi finding enough radiologists, you know, to, um, to actually, you know, do the work. And, you know, and thinking back about what was driving that, you know, I think it was a combination of, you know, the technologies, you know, particularly CT and MRI, you know, getting uh, better, you know, having more resolution, having new applications. Um, and then people were finding, you know, new, new reasons to do scans. So if you think about, you know, some of the common scans that we do now, I've always been interested in, in pulmonary embolism. And, you know, before the advent of the CT pulmonary angiogram um, and the advent of really modern ultrasound, if somebody you know, was suspected of having a PE or a DVT, you actually had to do a contrast venogram, which you know, usually they took the first year resident and you did venograms all day. You know, which for, for people listening who don't know what a venogram is, it involved standing a patient on a tilt table um, putting an IV into a vein, you know, on the dorsum of their foot, and then slowly instilling contrast as the stand with the table standing up, so that you filled up their veins, uh, and you'd take multiple, you know, cut film X-rays looking for a filling defect, uh, and then you would turn the table down and watch the contrasts, you know, flow up into the cava, and you, usually you got one snapshot of the cava. You know, as the contrast was was going um, going towards the heart, and then for a PE, you had to do a pulmonary angiogram. You know, which was you know going into the femoral vein and then navigating through the right side of the heart and putting a catheter in in the pulmonary arteries and you know injecting contrast. And so to undertake either of those was really you know sort of a big deal. They were invasive procedures, and then as CT got faster and faster. Um, you know, there was the development of the CT pulmonary angiogram. So now all you had to do was, you know, basically a CT with contrast. And so the number of, the number of people being evaluated uh, for PE, you know, went up exponentially with CT pulmonary angiograms. And the number of people, you know, being evaluated for DVT with a lower extremity ultrasound instead of a venogram, you know, also, you know, went up exponentially as well. And you can think about all the other applications in the common applications in radiology that the same group of forces applied to. Think about, you know, ultrasound for appendicitis in kids or, you know, um, CT uh, for right or left lower quadrant pain, you know, in adults or, or, you know, all of the head CTs we do for people who walk in with a headache uh, and all the, you know, the MRs we do when the CTs, you know, don't show anything. Um, and so this was all happening during the 90s. So there was just this explosion in the indications uh, for, for doing exams and the number of exams, you know, uh, the number of exams being done. And then also, you know, mapped onto this was the advent of PACs. So now instead of having to get a stack of films from the file room, you know, load them on an alternator, you know, read them, wait for the films to be taken down and a new set to be put up, you know, now you could pretty much read, you know, just continuously because it was all, um, 
all digital. And so these two forces to combine to this, you know, massive, you know, growth in, uh, in imaging. The one thing I would add to that is that um, there, by the end of the decade, it was clear that there was a real shortage of radiologists given all the demand. And the, from, a, from an economist's perspective, the radiology market looks like what's called a, a corn hog cycle in economics or in agricultural economics. And the, Are the radiologists the corn or the hog? Well, we got it. We're still working on that. That's going to be the addendum to the article here. But the, 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 main, the main point is when you have a market where there's a long lag to get supply to market, um, then the market's always going to be out of equilibrium. And, and so what you had was with the whole Clinton healthcare reform, nobody was going into radiology then because it looked like it was going to be a terrible idea if they were cutting down on that. I mean, the one thing that, that Clinton made clear in the process of, of putting together the legislation was that specialists were really going to be pushed away. And so you have that real dip in the number of people starting training, but of course, once the market picks up and people say, oh, it's a really good profession, let me start that. Well, then, you know, you have your, your residency, maybe you want a fellowship at the end. The point is it takes a long time for people to actually hit the market once they decide that, that this is a good profession to go into. And so the market is always kind of out of equilibrium because the people hitting the market are responding to the signals that were four and five years ago as opposed to what the signals are right now. It's probably a simpler way to say it. And I mean, we should just, the, the problem with the market response and the reason why the market can be tight is because the people who are hitting the market today are the people who were making decisions to join the market five years ago. Yeah, Frank, I think that's a, a great point. I was just, just about to ask that very question or actually interject that, that point on a personal note. I mean, I was, I'm a little older emphasis on little older than, than how. Um, and I was not a radiologist in the 90s, but I was a, a student, a medical student. So I saw this kind of firsthand when I would rotate. Um, it was probably 99 or 2000. And I was at a large um, uh, institution with a large radiology residency. And I saw that the senior residents, so these would be, you know, medical students in the mid, you know, 94, 95, where they were making decisions. Um, they were 70% you know, empty, you know, the, the, their, their junior class was very full, but their senior class was empty. And it kind of, as a you know, third year medical student, I didn't quite understand, you know, we would, when I was a first year student, we would look at, you know, competitiveness of these programs and it was really low competitive. And within three to four years, when I, you know, went to apply, it was extremely competitive. So I saw those economics, they didn't quite understand it, I think during the time, but we see these, these cycles. And, and like you just mentioned, I think quite, quite well, um, there's these lags and we, I think we see the same concerns, um, even today with, you know, certain technology disruptions, I think that we'll talk about, um, kind of getting into the minds and decision-making of medical students when they're in their second and third year, that doesn't really manifest themselves until, like you said, five or six years later when they're getting out of residency. So uh, right. I think that's kind of an interesting, um, dilemma, particularly, I think Max, maybe this is a good follow-up for you. Like, how does that affect how do you see that over the last couple of decades how that affects you know looking for you know, you know residents for physicians um and speaking to again i think the medical students and, and residents and how you know 
what's going on in the field today is might be very different than it is when you get out five, six years from now. Sure. And I think, you know, similar, you know, I think what's, what's, what's potentially scaring, you know, medical students away today, you know, is, is AI. Uh, but I think what I tell students who come, you know, to ask me about radiology is that, you know, there's always going to be something, but, radiology has had this really unique ability to adapt and evolve and, you know, reinvent ourselves in ways that, you know, weren't even, you know, conceivable, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And so what I tell people is if you, if this is something you're interested in, you know, go into radiology and you will always find a way to you know, make this work for you and have, have a really interesting, meaningful career, but you have to be going into it for the right reason, really that, that you're excited about it and, and, and can see having, you know, a, a fulfilling, you know, career that if you're just going into it for lifestyle or to make, you know, X amount of money, that's really not the right reason. And you might wind up being disappointed. And that ends part two of the series. Please join us next time when Professor Frank Levy and Dr. Max Rosen continue our discussion with part three, the end of the bubble years.